Can we just start, Ed, with what do you think was the main reason you ended up as a journalist? Is there a story there? I mean, I guess I always wanted to write. So uh, although, you know, ironically, I'm a TV journalist now, uh, so I don't do as much writing. And that's kind of where where books and things come in. I always wanted to write. I guess I always wanted to communicate. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I always thought that I would end up writing like novels. And I thought that when I was at university, I thought that I would do book reviews and things. And if you had told me back then that I would have been like an economics journalist, then I think I would have laughed or been disgusted because to me that seemed like the most boring thing in the world. But what happened, I guess, so I, I, I then, I wanted to be a journalist. I went and did you know work experience at, uh, at a few newspapers and one of them uh, I got like an internship at, it was the Telegraph. Um, and it just so happened after doing the, you do like a trainee scheme and it's great and you get trained doing these things after after the year or so of that scheme really the only job that was going was one in covering economics and like i say i had i really I, I i'm not ashamed of it i had no training in it i was not interested in it i thought it was the most boring thing the most dull thing on earth um but then i realized how wrong i was pretty quickly i guess um and so to some extent and i did later ironically you know, I learned on the job about how how the economy works and all of this. Um, although, I, gosh, if I if I if I look back at some of the early things I wrote, I, I imagine they would be mortifying. Um, but then later on, I did actually go and study economics, um, and I found actually, if I think really hard about it, I think that the grounding that I got out of t- kind of teaching myself through reading an extraordinary amount of news coverage, but also textbooks at the time. I found that was actually a, probably a slightly better grounding than the stuff I learned about, you know, with supply demand curves and all of that um, at, at college. So yeah, it's, it, I, I have no grand strategy about this, um, but I guess, it, I guess if I kind of wanted to, like, I guess the common theme is I always wanted to be able to communicate things that people, I guess, weren't aware of or were, seems overly complex uh, and try to explain them to people and say well here's here's something you might not have heard here's what matters to you um and in some cases that means kind of very much news stories in some cases it's analysis in some cases it's 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 on tv doing that stuff um and then yeah i mean like i i i went back to university of uh for kind of like in in the middle of all of that and then at that point at university i kind of said to my i was going to do a masters um at harvard and i i kind of thought to myself i was escaping journalism because i thought journalism was dead at that point you know like that has been this uh sector which many people have written off a long a lot of times including me uh and because it would see at the time it seemed pretty bleak and most newspapers were cutting and cutting and cutting um and that was really before social media had properly taken off and it was before blogs and it was before a lot of the the new media startups that we we talk about these days um, so it seemed like it was all dying. Uh, and so I said, I'm getting out of here. Uh, and I went off and I did this master's in public policy and thought, well, I just, you know, it's interesting and I, who knows what comes will come of this. And then I kind of finished it. And then I found myself once again, kind of being drawn back in just when they think, just when you think you've escaped, you're drawn back in. And then I got, I got into TV journalism at, at Sky News uh, in the UK. And it's actually, it's been the, the favorite part of my career it's really fun doing tv journalism but again i never would have expected 
at the start of my career that I would have been either a TV journalist or an economics specialist, just because to me, from the outside, they looked so boring and not not for me. So it, I guess that's the moral of the story is you never really know. So, so there was no master plan involved. Uh, you, you touched upon you did a, so. a master in Harvard. How would you... S- what is the big differences between education system in UK versus US? Are there any big ones, or is it if it's a good school, university, yeah. you're all set? Or I think, I think a really a really interesting one that I found quite culturally significant was that whereas in the UK and I think a lot of Europe, our education system is not very interactive. You know, we, we, the teacher or the, you know, the, the professor is up there on the stage telling us, you know, on their platform, their ivory tower, telling us their wisdom, they're imparting their wisdom. And we sit in the audience and we go, gosh, you're wise. I really wish I could be as wise as you. And we write everything down and we think to ourselves, um, yeah, I'm, I'm learning a lot. And you ingest it all. And there's a lot to be said for that kind of that way of education because one of the great things about going to university and to, and to school is you, you know you you are encountering people who know more than you about a certain topic and getting to learn that whereas i was quite shocked when i went to the states because um when i was there there was an enormous emphasis on class participation you know in fact uh, for for some of the courses in fact a lot of the courses that you do at harvard half of your marks are for your class participation for the extent to which you're making interventions the extent to which you're um kind of making contribution to the to the discussion in class um and i found that i don't know i i kind of some some classes i found that really irritating to be honest with you because i just wanted to hear more from the professor because you know some of these some of these professors at harvard are genuinely the world leader in a particular thing and i was like I want to hear what they have to say, you know, shut up. Um, But in some cases, you know, it did. What it certainly does is it leads to this for you as a student who is starting to come through this. You feel more like more of an equal partner. And you're also I think you learn during those encounters and those those sessions about the nature of how to make effective interventions, you know, if you're if you're trying to say something and you want your thoughts to be to carry the discussion over you 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 engage with that much more seriously than you do i think in in the in the british you know european system and so i think it does breed a, a slightly different kind of um an ethos in 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 students and i think that's part of the explanation i think that goes through the american system i think it's part of the explanation for why you know, Americans are often more confident than their counterparts in, in you know, uh, over over this side of the Atlantic, um, which is which is, I think, no bad thing. And uh, yeah, I was really profoundly struck by that. Like I say, my instinct was always, I guess, because I kind of growing up in the British system, my instinct was always if I if there was someone there at, at the front, you know, in front of a blackboard, I would want to just listen to them. Um but I, you try and kind of train yourself out of that, um, and yeah, I think this. I think that might just be. Everyone's always looking for what are the explanations for why America has this extraordinary productivity and dynamism, which just seems to always be kind of stronger than than in most other parts of the world. And there's you know there's ex- lots of other explanations you can look at, but like you know. There's there's energy, there's immigration, there's just the nature of the American state um, and the history as well. 
But I do think that those kinds of things, like subtle educational differences, they, they, they might be part of the explanation. I think that's a great insight. And obviously, you, you have covered a lot of topics during your career. We had the Greek default, we had a financial crisis. What is the most significant that left the biggest impression on you? Was it something early on or something in particular which mm. was at an enormous scale that you covered that you really you know, made an yeah. impression on you? Well, I don't know if there's any single thing. I mean, like... So, 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 so throughout throughout my economics career, I, I became an economics journalist, like I say, by accident. Um, and I very quickly kind of realised that if there was one thing I could bring to it, it was it was knowing knowing what it's like not to understand something. Uh, <laughs> that's weirdly that's a privilege, I think, uh, because a lot of my my counterparts in in economics they they had come through the academic. Um, channel and and as a result they 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 got it they they got it from 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 the start whereas i still understood and i think still understand how it can be baffling when you're outside and no one's really explaining here's what you need to know um but a lot of uh, when when i started economics was quite a boring topic it was it was it this was in 2006 or 5 or so and at that point it's hard to think of it now but you know, economics was seen as a bit dull. It was all about technocracy. It, you know, you had economists who were making subtle decisions about kind of fine tuning the stage of the economy. There was no drama about it at all. And that was part of, I think, the explanation for why I, as a, like a 25 year old, was made economics editor of this, of one of Britain's biggest papers, because it was like, who cares? You know, <laughs> no one really cares about economics. And then came the financial crisis, the banking crisis, the euro crisis, all of these things. And suddenly economics was was sexy. And so I'd, I'd been massively overpromoted, but I was in the right place at the right time. Um, and each of those events left a really deep imprint on me because, you know, it feels when you feel that you are living and reporting in particular as a journalist, because we are privileged to be have this this front seat in, in, in what's going on. When you feel like you're going through something historic, that is a that's an exhilarating thing to experience. Sometimes it's it's historic for bad reasons. A lot of the time in journalism for for bad reasons, but nonetheless, when you feel like you actually have a role, and and that role is to try to relate to people the significance of what we're living through, and perhaps to help them, um, then then that's that's an amazing feeling to have, and so. The financial crisis was one of those moments. Um, the the euro crisis, which later um, I was I was at Sky News doing TV at the at that time, was 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 a big one as well. Brexit. I mean, to report through Brexit and just kind of understand what was going on and explain what was going on was 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 amazing as well. Um, and I think also what like like a a similarly profound thing happened in in the last kind of three four years, which is that. And I think it's the case for, for for quite a few economics journalists. Um, COVID happened, and COVID was this was not a story that normally someone like me would have been that involved in. But I and also many of my counterparts covering economics realised that what 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 did what did we need from this? You know, we needed to be able to explain a very data heavy story because COVID was you know, certainly at the time, and to some extent still is about data, it's about health outcomes, and it's about the livelihoods and, and lives of many people around uh, the world. 
but it's also about data and it's about understanding exponential charts. And I then at that point, I was kind of watching from the sidelines for a while and looking at the numbers and I have my own spreadsheets. I'm thinking to myself, well, this, I, I feel like, I feel like I could, I could help here to explain some of this stuff. And then eventually I, I just did. Um, and actually spent a lot of that period in 2020, just trying to explain what was happening in terms of the data and actually trying to, I felt like that was one of those moments where you had these two poles and it's the same thing. I think we can talk about this with, with the climate and the energy discussion. And a lot of people who were just kind of denying that there was a problem at all. And then you had a lot of people on the other side who were, were kind of saying, this is a catastrophe. It's the end of the world. And there were too few people who were, were kind of trying to plot that course in the middle. I would say, if anything, the media was slightly more on the kind of catastrophe side of things. You know, they were definitely not on the kind of so much on the denial side of things. But trying to actually just look at the numbers and try to ignore all of that noise, because there was so much noise about it, and to say to people, this is where we are. Here's, here's what looks scary. But, you know, actually, this path that we're on at the moment isn't necessarily as scary as it was before here's the good news here's the bad news just being honest about about what we were facing with that whole thing whether it was the epidemiology or indeed the vaccines and anything else and trying not to get drawn into the the cultural arguments um i found was like a weirdly i don't want to say lonely but there were very few people who were really doing that so i, I know that seems weird but like at the time and so it's so I I found that quite a kind of uh, an important experience and a reminder that there is some value in just being as rational as possible and trying to ignore a lot of the um, a lot of the loud noise and a lot of the drama that you often get in 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 the media, frankly, and and to some extent, and I think that I think there's a, there's a a hunger for that kind of thing amongst amongst many of our viewers readers or the whole thing just just for people not to patronize them but not to not to unduly try to scare them to be honest also to be honest when they make mistakes because that's the other thing i think that we're not very good within the media at saying okay listen we've made a mistake there um hands up here's, here's where we are to just be frank about about the fact that we are just trying to to to, to explain our you know our situation in an inherently imperfect kind of world with an imperfect data and imperfect kind of ways of, of understanding that data. Um, I feel like that became my thing. And so at that point, because I was doing a lot of data that was on stuff that wasn't just economics, although of course it was an economic story as well, because we had lots of the, the lockdowns and, and, and there were big economic implications and GDP was going all over the place and we're living through to some extent, the implications of of that whole period now with inflation. I also was doing lots of the the, the data on on the epidemiology, um, and uh, I ended up doing data on all sorts of things, really. And so, but so my title at, at yeah. Sky changed to data data and economics, or economics and data. Um, but I think it's similar tools. You know, we're just trying to understand the world, aren't we? And and data is just another way of doing it. And by the way, that's one thing I don't want to rant about this. But these days, it's very, it's very trendy. It's very fashionable to talk about data journalism. In just the same way, actually, in a way, data journalism, I don't know if it's the same in, in Norway, I presume it is, but data journalism is like the big thing and everyone talks about it, or it certainly was like a year or two ago. 
um, about two, three, four years ago, it was fact check journalism. Fact checking was the big thing, checking all of our facts. I find this stuff really irritating, if I'm honest with you, because I think that all journalists should be fact check journalists. I think that all journalists should be data journalists to, a, to it's just literacy. We need to check facts. We need to have that in our, you know, every day to do that. We shouldn't have specialists to, you know, who are doing this. I, I that's that a little bit of a personal kind of feeling about this. Well, fair enough to have specialists doing it, but I just think everyone, yeah. every journalist needs to be kind of marshalling those kinds of uh, kinds of resources. So, but then anyway, that's that's basically what mm. I do. I do a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah but, but it's fascinating to hear because you know getting the balance right seems like a very interesting exercise. Especially, of course, the media landscape and so forth. It seems like getting that balance right, it's almost impossible, sort of, in some sense. But of course, it's not. But yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's something we should strive for, isn't it? I think that's the thing. But it's very easy to, to talk to an echo chamber because you're going to be more, you're going to be welcomed more by people who don't want their, their kind of preconceived notion of the world to be challenged. And so a lot of a lot of I think the discourse that we see these day, these days and social media exacerbates it. A lot of the discourse is is essentially trying to do confirmation bias on on people's existing preconceptions of the world. And I think that part of the role of of journalism should be to challenge the bias, not that confirmation bias, rather than rather than to to play into it. But but it's not comfortable for people. And I don't think it sells very well, to be honest with you. I think it's, you know, it's not probably not very commercially sensitive, uh, successful. So maybe that's a mistake I'm making in my career. But like, I think I think that's what we should be doing more of. Definitely. Let's take a segue over to the books you have been writing. Um, I said this before we went live that we had um, Robin Wigglesworth on, you know, talking about his great book on index funds and I asked him what was the experience like writing your first book and he said it was interesting because one of the biggest advice he received was don't F it up because you only get one chance to write a book and if you screw <laughs> that up, you're not going to write a second one. So you're on your third. So can we go back to the first one? Is there any wisdom okay. in that advice from Robin or what was your experience um... sort of writing your first book? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I probably have effed it up. Um, I mean, the first book was was a guide to economics, which I wrote when I was quite young. And I, I actually, you know, in my 20s. Um, and in, in a way, it was just this was the book that I wish I'd had when I was teaching myself e economics. And it was part of a series called 50, 50 Ideas. And this was 50 Economics Ideas You Needed to Know. But for me, I just wanted to make it the guide that I wish I had. And I reread it kind of recently because it, it got reissued uh, and I did a new introduction. And actually, it's kind of OK. It's all right. I think it's stood up to time OK. It's it's obviously of its time. Um, so it's it's written literally in the teeth of the financial crisis when that was all happening. I remember when Lehman Brothers went down, I was in the middle of trying to write one of the chapters on something else entirely. And so it was very distracting. Um, but that book, you know, has that's that's I think it's kind of done OK. And it's 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 sold pretty well over the years. I don't know what the best metrics for these things are. Um, and then I wrote a second book called um, The Summit, which is kind of a, a labor of love, really. Um, it's it's the story of Bretton Woods, which is the, the conference in 1944, where after the entire world's economic system fell apart during the 1930s and then you had the Second World War, which. Crucially, a lot of people, the vast majority of people at the time, recognised was a consequence of the economic breakdown of the 1930s. 
there was this big summit where um, all of the, well, the allied nations came together um, and decided to put the world back together, the economic system back together. And it's interesting in so many dimensions because this is, this framework was the framework that was later adopted in terms of its membership for the UN. So this was the beginning of the era of these big multilateral organizations, which still are dominant in the world today. The Bretton Woods, uh, the summit, summit uh, created the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Um, so there's institutions that came out of it, but also the the, the system that they set up then to, to kind of preside over the global economy was, you know, it led, it, it presided over this period where we had the 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 smallest number of financial crises in history. Inflation was pretty much, you know, pretty much under control. Um, GDP was strong. There were fewer recessions than than ever before. And so a lot of people look back to that period and say what they did in that in that meeting was one of the most um, successful examples of of people kind of coming together and creating a kind of set of agreements around which different countries can operate. And but what was interesting to me wasn't just that. I mean, at the time, no one else had written a book about it, although irritatingly, someone someone else wrote a book that came out literally a, a few months before mine about the same thing. The mine was slightly overshadowed. But um, what's most fascinating for me as well is that it, it was it was a real moment of human drama. So all of these people, some of the world's most influential economists, thinkers, politicians were together in this big old hotel that was kind of falling apart in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire uh, for three weeks in the middle of summer. Um, and it feels like, you know, the plot of a murder mystery, doesn't it? Um, and one of the guys, the American, the head of the American delegation, it turned out later, was having secret meetings with the Soviets. Um, and so there were question marks about whether he was a spy. Some people are convinced he was a spy. I think it's a slightly grayer area. Uh, but nonetheless, there's there's subterfuge going on. Um, the head of the British delegation, John Maynard Keynes, had a heart attack halfway through the summit. And so he he dropped down, collapsed. A lot of people thought he was dead. In fact, his his death was erroneously reported in the newspapers. Um, but he managed to recover and kind of get through this. And so there was lots of kind of drama going on with all these characters, very colourful characters that had never really been written about um, before, at least in, in in kind of modern, you know, popular history. And so that's so that's what I did. And it it's it, um it got reviewed very well. So it got kind of the critical reception was positive. I think the sales were poor, if I'm honest. Um, but I look I do still look back and I think that was, you know, that was a book that I'm I'm proud of having written because it was uh, you know, I think it was a contribution yeah. to our understanding of that period at least. Seems fascinating. Maybe you should send that uh, script over to Christopher Knoll if it's available. <laughs> Get that in a movie. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely got the potential. But um, so so many people have a dream of writing a book. What do you think kills that idea? Is it the idea itself or the execution? It, it is tough writing books. It is tough. Uh, the one I've the one I've just written, Material World, actually. So I was going into that with my eyes open because I remembered that. You know, it's 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 an arduous process, um, and it's difficult, and you're often staring at a blank screen or a blank sheet of paper, and it's you know it's it's difficult. Even if you really know what you want to write, putting it, getting it together is is quite an intimidating process. And so, you know, there are ways you can kind of manage that and compartmentalize it into certain parts. Um, and obviously, as journalists, we're I'm kind of trained to write, but even I have found it very difficult to kind of write the 100,000 or so words that 
that I that I had to write. But I did with with the recent one. Actually, I found it slightly less stressful than I expected it to be. Um, because, I don't know why. Maybe the the, the 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 topic was fascinating enough that I that I just kind of let it got carried away with it. Um, but yeah, it's it's first of all, it's intimidating. Second of all, it's a tough market right now, and um, yeah, not everyone reads books. Frankly, I, I love books and I read them all the time. But there are some people very intelligent you know people who just say don't read books there's no time for it um and as a result the it always seems slightly easier to kind of go for shorter based shorter form media you know and and frankly also it, it's very hard to make a living out of writing books i don't think i could necessarily make a living out of it it's something that one does alongside other careers for, for i think the vast majority of authors um, it's only a small fraction who can who can actually support a lifestyle on 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 books, and it's and it's 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 difficult. So, yeah, it's 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 tough. But I think that on the flip side, the thing that I always find slightly frustrating about journalism it's not, it's one of the good things as well, though. Um, but it's frustrating by the, as well is it's ephemeral. It's short lived. What we do, you know, if I write if I make a a piece for for Sky, it's on TV tonight. And then it's gone. You know, it was forgotten about. Same thing for if I write newspaper columns. They might be a great column, but no one's talking about them a few days later. You know, it's it, it's gone. And so there's something about a book and being able to create more of an intellectual legacy, I guess, with it. And to know that this is something that should stand the test of time, that again is kind of is different and is is satisfying in in, in a certain way. But like I say, that the, the downside of that is, if you're one of the great things about being a daily journalist is you can just go home after you've done your thing and forget about it. And the next day, you never know what the next day is going to bring, and that's great um, because you don't spend your time haunted, being haunted by what you need to do the following day. I mean, some of the time you do, but you know, fundamentally. Whereas you know, books are slightly different. But like I say, having having something that you that is is a work that you know that you'll be able to look at look at again in, in 10 years time, like I guess yeah. I have done with some of my other books. That's that's quite cool, um, definitely. So let's dive into Material World because it's a great read. And maybe we can start with what sparked the idea and when you started executing on it, because there mm. are, of course, authors who are well known for writing about materials and energy transition. Maybe some professors are most noticeable. Um, so I think you kind of find a unique angle. And I think that's also necessary in order to embark on writing a book because it's a long journey, as you said, right? So uh, totally. And I mean, I like I I would never go into any of these fields pretending that I'm an expert in them because I'm not. You know, I'm I'm just I'm a journalist. I'm a hack. <laughs> I'm 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 maybe, maybe most flatteringly, I'm a storyteller and a communicator. Um, and so the, where this started, and yeah, we can talk about there are some fantastic, amazing minds in the worlds of material science, but also kind of looking at energy, who 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 I cite a lot of in in, in the book. But for me, as 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 a kind of norm, normal person, I was struck when I I went to a mine. Um, it was a gold mine uh, a few years ago in Nevada. And I actually was going for a totally different reason. I was going to cover some story about statistics. So it was I was looking for something to illustrate um, what happens with the flows of gold around the world. 
And I found myself standing on the, the edge of this open pit uh, mine in Nevada and just being completely bowled away by the scale of it. It just it just it completely took my breath away. And I thought, I thought, wow, if that's what we do to get something like gold, which actually, you know, the vast majority of use of gold is what you'd probably call discretionary. You know, we put it away. It becomes a monetary resource. So it goes in banks, vaults. Um, it becomes jewellery that goes, you know, on the, the ne necks of people or the you know, ring fingers and so on. Um, but it's not like civilization would necessarily break down without it. You know, There's, doesn't we don't have to have a lot of the gold that we have, um, although there are some uses. And so I kind of thought to myself, gosh, if that's what we do to get gold, what do we do to get the stuff that we actually really need? And then I thought, well, OK, what is the stuff we really need? So we could probably survive without gold you know for most of the most of uh, the uses of gold um but what are the things that we really need and so that then just kind of led me down a road of thinking okay well probably it's this it's steel maybe it's copper probably and then i i guess i kind of went through the processes of thinking about what we actually needed to to, to make the world that we all kind of depend on and there was no the funny thing was you know a few other people have kind of looked at this but it's not like there is a list anywhere you know, these are the most important things out there. There's no, and there's no way of, this is part of part of what I, why I think it's kind of intriguing. If you look at GDP, if you look at the breakdown of gross domestic product, it's not like that has any relation to the stuff that we need to survive as a civilization. You know, the vast majority of GDP, the vast majority of, 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 of market capitalization in, 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 in many stock markets around the world are companies that probably, dare I say, we could kind of survive without. You know, like I think we could survive without a lot of social media. You know, it's an important part of the communication process, but it's not like humanity would cease to exist. Maybe we'd be, you know, slightly more better adjusted without it, dare I say. And the same, you know, you could say the same thing about a lot of a lot of services, not to to do them down. I mean, I work in a services industry. This is this is the services industry that we are that we're partaking in here. And it, I think it is important. But I just wanted to focus on something else. I wanted to focus on what are the, what are the foundations for, for the world that we we live in. Um, so initially for me, this was a, a book that was actually just trying to answer that question. It wasn't really supposed to be about the energy transition and material, you know, that the, our, our pursuit of materials. I kind of just wanted to know where does stuff come from? You know, where does it begin in the ground? When, when I look at my smartphone, where does the silicon in that smart in that in the chip come from? And the weird thing was that I found I spoke to a lot of people about this kind of thing. And it's 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 weirdly difficult to get answers to these things, partly because people don't really spend all that much time thinking about where the supply chain that they're part of actually begins. You know, I I don't think as a as a book, someone who's written books, I don't spend much time thinking about where the paper comes from. But when you go down that route, it becomes actually fascinating and you start to realize just what complexity this world actually consists of. Um, and so the book began as trying to kind of think about those things, going to, to the fundamental beginning of all of the, the different parts of our world. It's not in any way exhaustive, of course. And so I, I, I had to choose a certain number of materials. In fact, I originally started with seven, but it was just becoming too big and unwieldy. So I've got six in the end, and they are sand, salt, um, iron, copper, oil, 
um, and lithium. And the idea is that between those six materials, you can tell a lot of the, you know, some of the story, at least a lot of the important story of the human human progress, essentially, um, of the the energy transitions we've been through, of um, how we've all got kind of better off. Uh, of how we've been able to feed ourselves, of how uh, technology has developed and how we have made the world dirtier and may make the world cleaner. And it, it turns out that looking through those prisms, you know, it's, it is definitely not the only way to look at the world, but it is a fascinating way to look at the world because you kind of, you, you start to get more of an understanding of how it fits together in a way that conventional economics and a lot of the stuff that we talk about every day doesn't really kind of answer any of those any of those questions so um yeah it was a bit of a journey for me and it ended up with yeah with this book that I guess like I've been I've been waiting it'd been a while since my last book and I've been waiting for the right the right idea about which to write a book a lot of people a lot of journalists and there's nothing wrong with this at all kind of take what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and turn that into you know a book so you can kind of if if you're really if you're really kind of uh clever you can look at a lot of these books and you can see that that's that's a patchwork of of, of something that someone has been covering over the course of years that then turned into an elegant book and that's that's a great way of doing things and it's very efficient this was really inefficient because i was looking at stuff that i had never covered before in my life uh, i had no idea you know i'm i'm not a physicist i'm not an engineer i'm not a material scientist um, I'm not an environmental, you know, economist either. So for this, I was having to learn myself as I went along and use, I guess, the linkers, use some of the skills I started off with in my career, taking stuff I have no idea about and trying to understand it and then relate that to other people, um, but doing it for this material world that we inhabit. And it's been the most interesting thing I've ever, I've ever researched or written about by far it's so it's totally totally fascinating and yeah my only hope is that that comes across in the book and that people the more people who might not have thought of to look at this stuff suddenly realize hang on this this actually this is really interesting so you introduced uh, the six materials can we just if i ask the question what's the most undervalued or underrated which one would you pick out that maybe you know the normal person in the street wouldn't be aware of well probably i mean so maybe salt like so so copper i feel like copper is always underrated because you never you don't see much copper even though it's always there i'm in i'm in like a kind of recording studio at the moment and pretty much everywhere i look as it will have every de- device i look at will have copper in it and you know including this computer that we're talking on but you don't see it and so people people i don't think think about it that much um and also copper's great because it's like the first thing we ever mined uh, in great quantities and it's also now the key to 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 electrification in the future the key to to net zero um but i think salt salt i love because even people who think they know about this stuff don't pay pay much attention to salt. Salt is, you know, for a lot of people, it's just a condiment. Um, it's kind of might be interesting historically. And there's some great history stories about salt because the story, the history of salt tells you a lot about, about humanity. You know, salt used to be very, very expensive to, 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 to make, to evaporate away and, uh, and to, 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 to refine. And as a result, salt was often used as a kind of, 
as a tool of power. It was used as a currency. It was used as a form of money. Um, it was given as a ration to, to Roman soldiers. That's where the word salary comes from. They were given salt uh, as part of their as part of their kind of remuneration. Um, and it was also something that was one of the first things to be taxed. So, so governments would tax and monopolize salt supply uh, in order to wield power. It was all about power, salt and power. But yeah, what, what is so fascinating about it today is that the majority of salt that we get out of the ground even now, it's not used for, for going on your kitchen table or indeed for, for going on the, the roads to, to, to de-ice the roads. It's used in chemicals. Um, we get, I think, more than half of the salt that we produce, for instance, in this country. And we still, people don't realise that we still mine a lot of salt in the UK. Um, a lot of, the vast majority of that goes into the chemicals supply chain. And it gets turned into things like chlorine. So without salt, we don't have drinking water. Uh, and I went to one of the most fascinating places I went to is where we turn salty water coming out of the ground into chlorine, which then purifies the drinking water for 98% of the country. The guy there said, if this place goes down, then within seven days, we are rationing drinking water. And it comes from salt. Um, and so, and there's, you know, for instance, there's there's chemicals like soda ash and caustic soda, which again, people within the trade have obviously heard of. They're the building blocks of a lot of chemistry. Uh, but outside, most people don't don't spend any much time thinking about that. Maybe they think about baking soda. But without soda ash, you know, you don't have glass. You don't have a load of chemicals that we need today. Without caustic soda, it's just hard to know where to begin. You know, you, you don't have paper without caustic soda because caustic soda is used to, to turn kind of, you know, the wood into a kind of pulpy thing that you can then uh, make into paper. Um, these these are like the foundations of the world we live in. You can't clean anything. You know, you don't have bleach without salt because that's where it comes from. Um, and without bleach and without cleaning products, millions of people around the world would would have died. We just, you know, like that is part of the 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 story of progress over the last century is also making the world cleaner. And part of the way that we've made the world cleaner is by, you know, having these widespread chemical products which we can use. To, as detergents to to clean the world, all of which comes from this this I think really underrated substance that and I think this is the nicest thing. We all have salt in our lives. We all have it in our lives. It's there in plain sight, but you don't spend much time thinking about it because it's just there. And that's what I wanted to do with each of these substances is to is to. I mean, maybe you don't see much lithium, but you see a lot of steel, you see salt, you see sand when you go to the beach all the time. Um, you see iron, you see copper. I wanted, I wanted to kind of underline that there is there is wonder in these substances and they they have a far deeper history and that, you know, you can actually touch them. You can go and touch these things and then think to yourself, gosh, if it weren't for this substance I'm holding or I'm sprinkling over my chips, uh, then we the world would be a very different place and we wouldn't have half of the even the high-tech stuff you know even your silicon chip couldn't be made without salt because you need chemicals hydrochloric acid really uh that come from salt uh to as part of the refining process to take rock and turn it into into pure silicon uh that goes into your smartphone and the same thing with lithium so with lithium the way that we make lithium particularly the stuff that comes out of chile um the way they make that lithium, they were they they it comes out of the ground as a kind of brine and it gets precipitated away over over a long period. The way they're doing that is basically 
the same as the way the ancient Phoenicians thousands of years ago used to make salt. So the way we, the lithium that goes in your smartphone battery, there's a good chance that that was produced in the same way that ancient people many thousands of years ago used to make their salt. And I find that quite profound and quite exciting. And so that was just like, well, this is just a one tiny bit of the, the many stories I came across, which I guess is why it felt, why it wasn't such a drag to write this book, because it's like there's just so much stuff in there. And I had to, I had to cut loads of stuff because it, there was, you know, it was getting a bit too long. Um, but it's all, it's all exciting, exciting material, I think. That's a great answer. If we just uh, have the concept of the material world in general, who do you think are the most interesting people or companies to really try to understand? Of course, if we're talking about oil and gas, you end up maybe in Middle East, of course, but because like you said, it's a bit overlooked because people don't really think about it that much. And of course, mm. it's also, do you have abundance on some materials? Maybe you have scarcity somewhere, but it's so complex and supply chain. So is it politicians who are the most important people here or is it companies, people? How do you mm. view that landscape? What I found most interesting about kind of going into this world is that the vast majority of the 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 companies I was encountering were not household names. So you, you, you know, you think everyone's heard of Tesla, they've heard of, you know, Walmart, they've heard of Apple, but not, none of those companies really fully inhabit the material world. And what I mean by the material world is people who take stuff out of the ground and transform it into the physical products that we rely on, you know, every day. And it doesn't have to just be literally the physical devices you've got, but it could be, you know, the fiber optic cables that are that are allowing us to talk right now. People forget that this is an entirely material uh, mode of communication when they are communicating online. Um, it is everything is going through a fiber optic cable. Um, so the, what I kind of encountered is there are just this this enormous constellation of companies that I had never heard of who actually are doing the stuff that enable the household names to to provide their products. You know, Apple is a great example because they don't make a single thing. You know, they design extraordinary devices. Um, but most of the, well, all of the, their devices are are made by other people. And all of the components going into those devices are made by other people. And they just put the Apple name on. At the end, it's con a form of contract manufacturing, outsourcing. Uh, and it's been that way for a long time uh, for, for Apple. They don't make the chips. And in fact, you know, even TSMC, who make who make the chips that go into the you know the Apple devices, um, even they are not making the machines that make the chips, and even the the people who are making the machines. So, like, take ASML. So, you've got the silicon chip, which is the 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 incredible transistor density is thanks in part to something called photolithography. This process of bouncing light, this extreme ultraviolet light, which doesn't exist in the you know in the real world we inhabit. It's a total totally sci-fi thing they do, and we could kind of go down a long rabbit hole on that. But those those machines which are imprinting the incredibly small like nanometer dimension transistors onto the chips they're not made by csmc they're just operated by tsmc they're made by another company called asml now you know more people have heard of tsmc these days than, than have previously and actually more people have heard of asml than had done previously partly because we had this semiconductor shortage recently and it, you know a lot of people were paying more attention to this world but then even asml their machine 
is made up of thousands of components made by other companies. So then you kind of go down another layer of complexity and you look at other companies like Trump, who make the lasers that go into those machines. Or you look at Zeiss Semiconductor, uh, the semiconductor wing, who make the lenses that go into it. And again, the the further you dive into this world, the more you encounter, hang on, there are all these other companies who are the world's expert in you know, X or Y in the chemicals, for instance, a particular chemical that goes into that semiconductor foundry. And you realize that the companies that we've heard of are just sitting on top of this enormous um, sea of other companies who are kind of doing a lot of the real work, you know, and and that to me is 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 amazing and inspiring. Um, and that's before you even get to the fact that there is much more complexity further down that supply chain than you'd ever care to imagine. You know, when we in the in the press talk about semiconductors, for the most part, people are just talking about what's happening in those chip foundries in Taiwan, where the, the, the transistors are getting kind of etched onto the onto the silicon wafer. And no one talks about where the silicon wafer comes from, but that's a whole other world of complexity and excitement and interest in and of itself. And when I started off writing this book, one of the things I wanted to do, like I say, was to, I wanted to understand where things actually began. So I didn't want to, you know, have it just explained to me that silicon chip well it just starts at a foundry it doesn't start at a foundry where does the silicon start where does the where does the silicon come out of the ground and the people i spoke to within the semiconductor world so the people who are making those chips they didn't know they didn't know where the silicon itself would come out of the ground they'd never really thought thought about it because it's so distant to them all they do is they they order up a silicon wafer a pure silicon wafer and it arrives at the, with them well to, in order to create that silicon wafer, you need to go through process after process to take something that you mine out of the ground and turn it into something incredibly pure. It's an even more amazing journey than the one that goes on to make the, the chips themselves uh, is making that silicon. And that was just something that had never I'd never kind of, you know, read about in, 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 a, in a book before. And I thought, well, this is this is one of the most extraordinary journeys in the world. And. All, all along that journey, you're 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 encountering companies you've never heard of, you know. And there are some of them mentioned in the book. Um, and I talked to actually Elchem was one of the the companies I talked to who kind of do a lot of mining of of uh, uh, of quartzite, which actually for them typically more goes into silicones and stuff. But I, I found that was a world that was to me very unfamiliar and peopled by people who who are really expert in their field, who are not very publicity hungry. So a lot of these companies don't have a big, you know, they don't talk about themselves all that much because they just do what they want to do. And also because for some of them, you know, they're working in the world of manufacturing and energy intensive industry, and they're quite carbon intensive. And they know that it's it's not very popular to to be a carbon emitter, even if you're emitting that carbon to do something which might help the energy transition further down the line. And this comes back to this other issue that we discussed when it comes to, to, to COVID. It's very difficult, you know, these days within within kind of mainstream press. Things things are not necessarily covered in a way that is super rational a lot of the time. You know, it's 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 about denial or catastrophism. You know, there's there's it's the end of the world or you know why are we panicking? Nothing's going wrong at all here. 
And the people, most of the people in this material world, in these companies, you know, then they're not focused on that drama. They're just trying to kind of do their job. And a lot of, a lot of the time that job is taking us to a slightly better place. Um, but they're so, I think they feel like every time they engage with the media, then they get caught up in that drama. And the book, I hope, doesn't fall into either of those two camps. And it hopefully kind of takes, takes you into a rational way of looking at the world, looking at the world. Uh, there are enormous, enormous challenges in terms of getting the energy transition going. Um, but trying to paint everything in terms of either denial or doom, you know, it's denial or doom, which is the way a lot of it kind of ends up going. I don't think people respond to that all that much. Um, so, um, and I don't think it's a fair reflection of the real world, you know, so hopefully that book, hopefully the book kind of, you know, answers that a little bit. You just touched upon, you know, the net zero ambitions, energy transition, given all the research you've done right now, what do you think the roadmap looks like, especially in renewables? I find it interesting to see at China, just because they're doing things at a very big scale and they're also very pragmatic energy security. There's so many topics, you know, involved in this, but how do you mm. feel about the roadmap and where do you look to try to see what's the best or what is, you know, how do we think the future will look? Because it's going to be a very difficult task. That's for sure. That's the point. I think it's, I think it's going to be, it's very, very challenging. And it's challenging because we are, I think, first of all, because we are moving down the, the thermodynamic ladder. So we're going from a situation, if you look back at previous energy transitions, each time we were going from a fuel that was slightly less energy dense to one that was more energy dense or more convenient. So from wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to gas, we're moving kind of up this ladder where things are getting more efficient each time and we're getting better turbines and we're able to eke more power uh, and more energy out of those out of those inputs. Whereas, and obviously along the way, the, the, we didn't realize at the very start of this, but then we kind of gradually realized it, we were also emitting carbon. But it's also worth just remembering that at each of those stages, what looked, it didn't look like it was an environmental catastrophe at the time. In fact, it looked like the new technology was going to save the world. And I think a really important thing to remember about this. So coal is obviously not a great fuel. It's not very popular right now for understandable reasons. It's very carbon in intensive um, and it's very dirty in other ways as well. However, when we first started using coal in this country, in the UK, um, in the kind of, you know, 17th, 18th centuries, it was seen as the solution to an ecological catastrophe, which was that we were running out of trees. We were using up, we were basically deforesting this country in order to, to fill the furnaces to make not just steel, but partly steel and well, iron mostly, um, iron, but also glass, uh, beer, all of these things um, were consuming an enormous amount of wood to the extent that people were getting panicked about us running out of wood. We were literally cutting down our entire our entire kind of forests. Um, coal came along and coal basically solved that. It solved that, you know, almost overnight. So, you know, the forests could eventually start to kind of rebuild in this country. Of course, it brought with it terrible catastrophe 
uh, in the long run when it comes to, to carbon emissions, but it solved an economic ecological catastrophe at the time. When oil came along, you know, people were worried about the extinction of sperm whales because people were were, were fishing sperm whales to get the, the oil uh, from those sperm whales to use for, for, for lighting, for lanterns. So, so oil, when it came along, averted another ecological catastrophe. People were worried that the streets in, in, in New York and London were getting so filled with horse manure that, uh, that they thought the entire cities would be swamped by them. Well, then the car came along and it solved that catastrophe. So each step along the way, what seemed in hindsight like a terrible thing actually turned at the time seemed like it was really solving all of our problems and going up this this um this ladder of thermodynamic kind of efficiency well with with net zero we are going down that ladder and we're going down that ladder and also at the same time having to try to reimagine a whole suite of different industrial um processes which underlie the world that we that we live in today and i think that's what is 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 partly challenging about this when you when you look back at history when you look at the industrial revolution and you'll see this in the book you realize that this wasn't just a revolution of working out how to make steel better you know although that was part of it and if you if you look at the um the the story the kind of cliched story of the industrial revolution it's all about steel and how we made made steel with coal and coking coal and about textiles and things like that but at the same time so many different things were happening there were so many different advances there were advances in chemicals so we were learning how to make chemicals properly a lot of that was quite carbon intensive we learned how to make concrete properly that was quite carbon intensive too we learned how to refine metals that was really carbon intensive at the same time we were learning and making all of these amazing processes you know aluminium making aluminium electrolysis all of this was happening kind of at the same time over the course of about 200 years and what's enormously challenging about net zero is we're having to compress a lot of that those achievements um into such a short space of time relearning how to do all of this stuff without emitting carbon or at the very least coming up with a really good way of capturing the carbon while also kind of shifting down from a high uh, energy density set of fuels to a low energy density set of fuels and I think when you put all of that together, the scale of the challenge is utterly enormous. And what concerns me is that I don't think the politicians, when they signed up to these net zero pledges, were being honest. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't think they understood themselves the scale of that challenge, you know. Um, but they weren't honest about it. And so it was it was painted as you know, the costs weren't made very clear. And I, I think the difficulty of what we're going through right now is that people are starting to realize that there are costs attached because it is now impacting them with their cars and, and everything else and their heating and so on and so forth. And they're thinking, well, hang on, why are we having to pay more for this stuff? No one really told us about that. And, you know, that this is the inherent problem is that it is going to be expensive to get there. But I still think it's both necessary and a good thing. And... I think part of the problem here is that there's opportunities, there's massive opportunities. And what I've just described about us needing to reimagine the entire industrial revolution in a carbon neutral way, that is one of the biggest industrial opportunities that the world has ever had. It's one of the biggest challenges we've ever had, but one of the biggest opportunities, because you need to think about everything. You need to think about a way of making silicon metal, so metallurgical silicon, first stage in making those silicon chips, 
right now there is no way of doing it without using coking coal in the furnaces, which, by the way, is an interesting thing to reflect on. When you're using your smartphone, you are using a fossil fuel product. When you're using the chip in that smartphone, it's it's fossil fuel product. But right now there's no way of doing that without carbon emissions, without using coking coal. But people are working on that and there are exciting things going on. So we are living through one of the most exciting periods because uh, one an enormous industrial challenge has been set to the world and people are coming up with smart ways of, of meeting that challenge. I feel too little is made of that. And I feel that it would be more palatable, I think, for people to to understand, you know, the the downsides if they also understood there are big opportunities here. Um, the opportunity isn't just that, you know, by the end of this century, we will have a cleaner world, which is more sustainable and which is less reliant on other people. It is that we will also develop a whole new suite of industries which are doing amazing things. Just to go back to your to your original question, um, and this is kind of a long-winded way of answering it, but um, I think part of the issue is that there is this big industrial opportunity. Um, right now, it's been taken by China. Um, it is it is doing extraordinary stuff right now when it comes to its batteries, when it comes to solar panels. Um, but a lot of that IP originally evolved in Europe. Um, and Europe has just has allowed the industrialization a lot of of a lot of this green tech to happen elsewhere. And to some extent for the world, it's a great thing because China's doing it at such scale that it's getting prices down and there's enormous advances. Although you could say it's some there are some downsides because it's using a lot of coal to do it. But the 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 aim is to to create more of this technology, to make it cheaper. That's all a good thing. But what's what I think is a shame is that in Europe, you know. It could have been a good way of offsetting the 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 downsides that people will inevitably see in the coming years. It's going to be more expensive. Energy is going to be more expensive for quite a while before it gets cheaper. It will get cheaper in the long run, but it's going to be more expensive in the short run because we are moving from very cheap, quite prevalent sources of energy down to less energy dense sources of, of energy. And at the same time, trying to create a massive industrial base of reimagined uh, sectors by while doing it. So it's going to be expensive uh, in the short to medium term. But to offset that, we could at least be kind of making more of the fact that this could be a really exciting industrial revolution to live through. And it feels right now like Europe's not quite, you know, seizing the, the opportunity there. And, and in fact, China and the US uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act are doing it. So I think it's, I think that's a bit of a shame. I agree. Just a final topic. Uh, we have a bunch of young professionals tuning into the show to learn from the best. And I'm pretty sure there are many up and coming journalists who would love a career like you've been able to have. What are the biggest, you know, reflections, advice, principles you would like to pass down to other people who are trying to make an interesting career? It doesn't have to be a TV presenter, but maybe they want to work mm -hmm. with something meaningful and have a fulfilling career. Do you have any principles, advice? The abiding the abiding thing that I've always tried to do is just is just to cover what I thought was interesting, even if a lot of other people didn't think it was interesting. And a lot of the stuff, you know, in my books or in the, my coverage that I've done over the years, you know, so, sometimes I've I've got stories by talking to people and getting interesting lines that weren't there. Sometimes I've got bona fide scoops, but a lot of the time, the stuff I'm proudest of were topics that other people just didn't spend much time thinking about because they thought they were too boring, they thought people wouldn't have any interest in them. 
um, they didn't bother to look at this data set because it just looked a little too intimidating. Um, there's, I think, a, a lot of there's a lot of material out there for writing and covering amazing topics, provided you're you're willing to give it a little bit of time and research. And that's basically what I have done for a lot of my career. And it's certainly what I've done with this book. There's very few bits in this book that haven't been covered elsewhere by eminent professors and very smart people, but corralling stuff together in a way that people will be able to digest it and will be able to engage with it. That's what we do as journalists, you know, we, we're, we're not seeking to be the world's experts at this or that. We're just trying to communicate stuff that we think is important to people. Um, so I think that that matters. Fo focusing on something, finding something that you think is interesting and no one else does. That's a good start, actually, I would say, uh, because if you're passionate about it, then your passion will come through. And if you're able to just think for a moment while you're doing it about how someone who doesn't understand anything about that topic and who doesn't realize that it's important how can you get it across to them you know what's the what's the the elevator pitch or the conversation that you would have in the pub with those people thinking about about explaining things in that way is a really is a really good start um i think the other thing is like i never had like a grand strategy other than wanting to to do that to communicate to people um but journalism you know, it's 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 a hard it's a hard it's hard sector to break into, and it takes time. It takes time to build up a following, and you can there are plenty of tools you can use, whether it's social media uh, or blogging platforms or podcasting and so on. But you know, as 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 you know, Christopher, it's 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 it takes time to build up a following, and that's not always immediately obvious to to you you know if you're starting off you just look at people with these uh pre-existing uh communities and think to yourself well i'd like some of that but it does it does take time to build it up so and it's an investment in um in your career but it, it may take a bit longer than you expect uh to do that the 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 landscape of journalism right now is it's very different to when I started, when it really was quite a bit more conventional and you didn't really have much, you didn't have many, if if any, people coming through blogging. But social media, Substack, all of these things, and YouTube as well, uh, and podcasting, are fantastic ways to build up a well of different stories and resources and episodes that you can kind of later look back on with pride. You just, it might just take a bit longer than you expect. And that's why I think it's important all the way along just to follow what you think is interesting. Um, and I think if you do, then you'll also be satisfying your own curiosity along the way. And I promise you that there are, you know, there are definitely lots and lots, because I keep coming across them all the time. Lots of stories in weird nooks of the internet or different sectors. Uh, or in politics that that are kind of under focused on and there are opportunities to to tell unique and engaging stories there so i would encourage all of you to to kind of get out there and 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 do more of that
That's the perfect ending. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a huge privilege having you on and everyone needs to check out the book because it's well worth the read. So again, thank you so much. Thank you.